I'm Ryan Pack. And I'm Nicole Barlow. And this is Soundtrack Your Life, where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to. Today we have Rachel Brodsky on the podcast. She's an LA-based entertainment writer who writes for Stereogum. She also hosts the InSync podcast with Aviv Rubenstein. Welcome, Rachel. Hi. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about InSync? Sure. Well, InSync, I think, shares a lot in common with Soundtrack Your Life because we ha- there's a soundtrack element to the show, but but basically we celebrate uh, moments um, of music, like great music moments on screen. So we pick like one scene, one song, and we break it down. We choose classic movies or shows. It, it does, we do talk about TV and film. So we choose classic episodes and movies, but we also talk about newer, like more zeitgeisty moments. Like we have a um, long, long time uh, sync episode about uh, The Last of Us, which was popping a few months ago. And we have uh, a Wednesday Gugumuk episode, but um, our first ever episode was about uh, my all-time favorite music sync ever on TV, um, which is the series finale of Six Feet Under and how Sia's Breathe Me closed it out. And we try to have music supervisors guest whenever possible to talk about like if they're the decision makers behind those, those syncs and have them talk about how that song ended up um, on the like in that scene and like what it did, we kind of break down like why it was successful and like what it did for the moment. And like, and we we have a yellow jackets episode coming up. So uh, yeah, it's fun. We, um, you know, we, I like to say that it's a pretty elastic concept because while it is one song to screen sync that we talk about per episode, we also tend to like, it's it's not it's not so like hyper focused that we don't like talk about other really great music moments in any given movie or show because like we often have a really hard time even just choosing. So well, we're so happy to have you, and we are thrilled to know that you love a tangent because there will be many tangents <laughs> today. I, I live on tangents. <laughs> Just yeah, it's the me brain. It's like one yeah. story leads to another. To it, my the brain we have like uh, Russian doll brains. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, I mean, with that said, uh, I guess this is a good segue into why did you choose Dirty Dancing for us? Other than the fact that it's iconic, amazing, and one of the best-selling soundtracks of all time. Oh, well, so I saw that you hadn't done a Dirty Dancing episode yet, and I think it was just top of mind because Aviv, my co-host on InSync, and I were like in the process of picking um, another, like what was our next episode going to be? And when we first started conceptualizing what InSync would be, um, we made just a giant master list of ideas, and we both just like added to it, just like free writing 
what we stuff we wanted to do and that and that one was really high up on the list just dirty dancing in the last in the last scene the the iconic i've had the time of my life scene with the lift and and all of that so um i think it was just like really already in my brain <laughs> when you when the ask when you guys emailed me and i was like well i've seen this movie probably three or four million times i don't have to even rewatch it because it's just in my dna and um likewise i remember having I think like my parents, I had a lot of cassette tapes as a kid uh, in, in the 90s, but my parents also had a pretty like major collection of cassettes and vinyl. And I remember how they had like the double cassette tape because they were, I think this, this was after the initial soundtrack to the movie dropped and then, and then to kind of like keep the train and like capitalize on the film's success. The like production company or RCA records released like a double album. Mm -hmm. So my parents had like the double cassette tape in like this drawer where we kept, we had like tape organizers and there was this there that was. And I was just like never without my Walkman as a kid and, and then later my Discman and later my MP3 player and so on. But um, I, I just remember like, I love this movie and oh there's the music i can listen to the music whenever i want and like listening to the tapes like just at home chilling out just thinking and i, I never really listened to any soundtrack before that had like a mix of the actual like the the pop songs the songs that uh like, like the diegetic songs um but also the the score because like the tapes had some of like the themes, like the score element um, intermingled a bit with, with those, with those songs. So, and I just remember thinking like, wow, this is new and interesting. And, and that, that's just, yeah, this was my long-winded answer of like, well, this is just in my bones and I could talk about this like forever. <laughs> forever. I, yeah. It's so funny that you said that because prior to do, I also did minimal research here because it is like a part, it's a fiber of my being. It's not even something that I can think about being without. It is that coded and imprinted onto me. Um, I can remember the staying power of this movie being so great that it came out when I was like fairly young. And then I can remember like later being like in those adolescent like slumber parties and you'd like be playing like light as feather, stiff as board and then like turn on dirty dancing because it was like, it had this like entire zeitgeisty thing where I think if you didn't live like the late eighties, early nineties, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but Patrick Swayze was huge. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure this movie like coasted to success on the basis of like just Patrick Swayze's like inordinate amount of riz. He was like our yeah. Austin Butler, okay? Like he yeah. was the Austin Butler of like the late '80s and early '90s. Yeah, he his charm just like exploded off the screen. And um, what's funny is like I don't even think as a a youngin that I looked at Patrick Swayze and thought, gee, what a beautiful man. But in like adulthood, I think I've just been like, wow, like I've like it, I, the movie has grown with me and I've like grown with the movie. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's really fun to revisit at different stages in, in life. And, um, 
that is one of the that is one of the new developments. Like as I got older, I was like, oh, he sure is a beautiful man, and <laughs> wow, he is an amazing dancer. And I well, also like what's funny is that that the Houseman family, like Jennifer Gray's family in the movie, always reminded me a little bit of my mother's family. Mm. It's kind of hard to explain, but like. So I think Kelly Bishop, who plays Jennifer Gray's mother, she has like reddish hair. And my grandmother used to have that exact same um, hair color. She like really resembled Kelly Bishop. And Jerry Orbach, um, her father, Jennifer Gray's father, like really reminded me of my grandfather, just like their, the way that their faces and like their height, like they, they just looked a lot alike. Um, their personalities, I don't think were super similar, but like they physically resembled each other. And, um, my mom always reminded me a little bit of, uh, of baby because people always seem to like underestimate baby. Like they kind of, like at least her family kind of underestimates her. Like they have this very specific idea of who she is, which changes, Mm-hmm. across and what which is what makes the movie a coming of age movie mm-hmm. and um but she's the younger sister who's a little bit overshadowed by her older sister who is just like really outgoing obviously an extrovert wants to be in all the group activities and um and they get along but like they're not they're nothing alike and my mother has an older sister um, and in, in their younger years, like even the way that my aunt kind of looks and sounded, and she also did do some singing. I remember she was like, the, she was the music teacher at mm-hmm. my uh, like preschool and kindergarten all the way back when I was really, really young. And I even thought their voices sounded alike when they sang. Um, and, and my mom um, was kind of like a caterpillar waiting to become a butterfly. I think in in the whole context of her family. So I think like I watched the movie so much too because I was like, I feel like I'm watching my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I know her. I don't know how else to explain it, but like that I think I felt like a weird, you know how when you're really, really young and like your parents are just like your heroes and they're the only adults that you kind of have to like base off uh adulthood off of well I think that's a little bit of what was going on too when I would watch Dirty Dancing and just seeing and plus I come from a Jewish family and the and while the movie never um explicitly says like this is a Jewish family and they're at a Jewish resort in the Catskills I think that that too on some um like uh subconscious level was was resonating with me because we didn't go to a resort but um I think my older members of my family easily could have like that's a completely plausible like vacation for them um the older (laughs) uh because like resorts like they even talk about in the movie like this this is a mid-century thing that's dying and the 60s and 70s and like the culture changes will kill will, will kill it off and it's like the yeah. end of it end of innocence but um yeah I, I mean i went to like summer camp in the catskills so it just feels very like northeastern jewish <laughs> that's so funny to me because i i grew up here and so growing up in california um you don't know where the catskills are i'm like a nine-year-old in california i don't know where the catskills are i i don't have that um you know level of knowledge but you also kind of 
I think that's part of why you get invested in it because there's actually some really nice like world building that happens and like this whole kind of um, early 60s revival thing that they do in this resort setting is really like effective. Um, I think it's effective too because the the screenwriter um, Eleanor Bergstein, it, it's all kind of like cut from her life. It's based on her own life experience, both going to um, these summer camps, but then also eventually becoming kind of the Johnny Castle and becoming a dance instructor herself. So, um, you know, credit to her honestly for bringing something that has, I think, a very strong POV and also has a lot of things in it that. And I know we're here to talk about the music. We're gonna get to it. Um, a lot of things in it that are like, I think would kind of be shocking today. Like this movie has like, on her insistence, uh, this movie has a backroom abortion in it. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's totally like ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, honestly, when I was really, when I was young and I, we first, when I first watched it, so um, a little bit, a, a little bit of more exposition <laughs> for me, but we taped this movie off of TV. And yeah. so uh, for years, I would watch, I would just rewatch Dirty Dancing with all the 80s commercials stuck in there. And f for years, I didn't even watch Dirty Dancing um, without like commercial breaks. So um, uh, now, of course, I can. But like, like, I did not realize when I was really young, and I'm probably going to talk about this again um, when Aviv and I record our episode on, on the movie, but like, I did not realize for years that this movie was like Dirty Dancing was meant to take place in the early 60s mm -hmm. because of how 80s it is. And right. that, yeah, it's just such a, such a mishmash of 60s culture, late 50s music, early 60s, and then this like, synthy drum echo with drum machines like <laughs> saxophone like just turn up all the sax all the way although i think though in re like thinking about it again like the 60s and the 80s definitely like they both of those decades have sax in common um <laughs> <laughs> i read somewhere that like they the uh the sound some of the songs in the soundtrack sound um like more like the guitar is turned up on the soundtrack but turned mm -hmm. down in the film because the like guitar wasn't such a presence yet but saxophone mm -hmm. was so anyway mm -hmm. like i just did not this movie existed in its own like dimension for me okay. as, yeah. and and only now as an adult like i can see the, like the venn diet like the sloppy venn diagram of the 60s and the 80s and and how like the snake is eating its tail <laughs> <laughs> and it really is like a, it is a weird mishmash of like things that are straight like be my baby from the ronettes and then mm -hmm. you have the you know most famous track from from the soundtrack which is time of my life mm -hmm. and the time of my life has this vocal by bill medley from the righteous brothers so it's kind of this it's a very weird like yeah, 60s by way of the 80s kind of feel that does like exist out of time in some ways. Yeah. Um, and honestly, like even just for this podcast, like recording, I had never really done a, such a deep dive. Like I've been listening to these songs, mostly in the context of rewatching Dirty Dancing for decades. But other than um, the Ronettes and uh let's see like simon burke 
Solomon Burke um, and like Otis Redding and like Mickey and Sylvia outside of those really famous songs. I don't think I'd ever like really done super amount of research into like Eric Carmen and writing hungry guys because that's you know, super eighties. And right. yeah. Um, and I also like, I always really loved the song. Yes. Uh, which I read was supposed to go to um, Mary. Do you remember her last Mary name? Wells, I think, is it Mary? Mm -hmm. Wells? Um, yeah. And then they kind of swapped one Mary for another. And yes, were like, I guess this is fine. Spelled, Mary spelled differently, but right. um, yeah. Um, who like, has a 60s moment 70s moment because like she sang with the rolling stones but i can't imagine anyone else ever singing yes there's just so much like excitement behind it well there's a lot of happy accidents on this movie that i think stem partly from the fact that a lot of people didn't want it to happen and walked away from it and thought it was like straight up radioactive ryan and i were kind of talking about this before the podcast how a, a lot of people just rejected this because they thought it was going to be a complete failure or they thought yeah. it was going to be porn. <laughs> or that. Yeah. They thought it was like, like straight up. And also I think because like Vestron, their, their film, um, their, their, their film distribution production company was so unknown. Like, I don't like what they had never actually done, like a feature length film before. So um, nobody really took the, I mean, it, it's like as indie as indie gets for, for that time period. And, um, I think Patrick Swayze and uh, Jennifer Grey were both like relative unknowns. Right. And right. yeah, and like this movie like got made because all like the, and I, I actually read Jennifer Grey's bio autobiography, which is great if you haven't read it. Uh, it's super enter entertaining and well-written. Um, but in, in there, she talks a lot about like bringing her own clothes to play, um, to play baby. But uh, so it was like very DIY for its time. Yeah, there and, was almost yeah. not even a soundtrack. Yeah. Um, one thing that I don't know, I, I wondered about was like how they even, and, I, and like I didn't really see much information about this, but like what, how much did it even cost to, to, to get like an Otis Redding song? Right. I, and I mean, there. then maybe because, maybe because it was like partly responsible for this kind of like revival of those, like whatever you want to call them, golden oldie oldies or like soul hits from back in the day. Mm -hmm. Maybe it didn't cost them very much. Maybe like the, the licensing for that wasn't wild in 1988. Yeah. Um, it's just a different landscape that I'm yeah. I, less, I mean, today I feel like those songs would cost a lot, like definitely be my baby would cost a, ton of money absolutely any anything but like anything by otis redding anything by um solomon burke and but but i think i i think i think that because of the the thing like the way that this song this movie introduced all these songs to me because for me um i i hadn't heard most of these songs and like until watching this movie and i started watching this movie when i was like probably seven or eight which is honestly like I make this 
comment a lot to friends and stuff, but I feel like if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, like there was this very like divorced, like divorcee energy that you had as a little kid because you were like watching Dirty Dancing and listening to Celine Dion and like Annie Lennox was walking on broken glass. Like you had all this drama in your life, even though you were like, whatever, eight to 11 years old and you had like no claim to any of those feelings and no clue what was going on. But there was something like very, I don't know, intriguing about that kind of like, entry point into the adult world and a lot of these songs have such their love songs they're very like mm-hmm. adult themed love songs um, they're also that, like, really horny fun. songs yeah totally no completely this is like this is a horny ass movie yeah, yeah but we didn't have genius.com back then to tell us what these songs really meant <laughs> no we had to draw our own conclusions and we were children and the conclusions were you know wrong and then later you're like oh, yeah that, that's what it like what really stood out for me was just like how the 80s and the 60s are so like overlaid on top of each other from the from the styles like the clothes to the hair the hair but, to but most specifically in the music mm-hmm. yeah like because they're dancing at the very end so what is clearly a deeply 80s song like this could not (laughs) this like not i mean uh, not to say it's like there's uh, there's there's nothing innocent really sounding i mean i feel like early 60s songs of that of that era i mean we're, we're like approaching um more like suggestive songs uh and like like woodstock hasn't happened yet but a lot of it is like just deeply innuendo yes it is it's it's completely innuendo it's very that like oh chuck berry or like you know um that it's that feel of like Mm -hmm. it it means something but they're not allowed to like outright say it Mm -hmm. which kind of i think like fits the whole like mood of this like backroom dirty dancing you know thing that's happening in the catskills um but yeah, it's it, like the fact that they thought they could get away with having that climactic song just be like sung partly by Bill Medley and that would be fine. <laughs> like that would put it in the era is kind of funny. Yeah, um, like it did look like they, um, the producers really tried to get artists who had hits in the 60s to like come back and and write for this for this era. And like it... And, and it sounds like for them, it was kind of an easy yes, even though they had to go through so many, um, so many people at first uh, for a lot of these songs. Like I, I, like they wanted like Kim Carnes, I think, to mm-hmm. like be the female uh, part on I've Had the Time of My Life. Um, and most of these people were just like, nah, I haven't, I like, I, I don't, I've never heard of Vestron and I've never like heard of, the actors like a lot a lot of the time to like get a big name you just like need to already have um like showing your work you need right. to al- already have like this like resume of like stuff you've achieved in order to get anyone like of note to right and it's funny too because like there are these little like pieces of oral history where the producers are talking about like basically chasing bill medley like he's the biggest celebrity in the world like oh you're the voice of the 60s bill medley you've got to do this movie and even he's like unconvinced right yeah he but said no at first because i think his wife was no. having a baby he was having a baby mm-hmm. which is i don't even know and, how old he was and he said i promised that i would be there <laughs> for this one 
Yeah, for this one, I got. <laughs> I promised my wife I would be there for the birth of the baby. Yeah, what what a hero, really. Well, because Bill Bill Budley and the Righteous Brothers were just coming off of, if I'm understanding the timeline correctly, like they had just had um, like a huge resurgence with um, "You've Lost That Loving Feeling" from Top Gun, mm-hmm. and so there's also like a really little like a funny tidbit of a story where Bill Mudley talks about like you know, they're going on all these tours all of a sudden because now he has like two like massive pop hits that are charting, but everyone in the audience is like a 13 or 14 year old girl. <laughs> and they're all like singing along to to these songs that are not meant for kids. It's just like you said, Rachel, like they're very like horny songs, right? Yeah. <laughs> weird. Um, and he, and he, so he tells his manager, like, this is weird. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I guess his manager was just like, well, you should sing to the moms and then take the money and run. Yeah. 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 And then uh, Medley and the Righteous Brothers show up again for Patrick Swayze in Ghost in 1990 with Unchained Melody. Shit, you're right. I didn't even yeah. think of that. I, I do have, speaking of Patrick Swayze, I do have like, a long-standing love for she's like the wind. Oh, same. <laughs> and it, like, here's the thing, okay? Like, don't come for me. She's like the wind is like objectively not an amazing song, right? Like, yeah. if, if we were to divorce it from the idea of this movie and from like the absolute like raw charisma that mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze possesses, it's maybe not a great song. But the fact that they didn't have enough songs in the soundtrack, yeah, and Patrick yeah. Swayze was just kicking it backstage, like, well, I've got one that I wrote. And for another movie for another movie that didn't you know like he's like i can just use this here like mm-hmm. first of all like patrick swayze let's take a second to respect swayze swayze action star ro- romantic film star ryan's laughing at me because i'm gonna have my swayze rant but let me have this moment classically trained in ballet like the movement that this man can like possess like how he inhabits his body like not like before sense like he's incredible it's incredible the things that he can pull off and one of mm-hmm. them is pulling off this song <laughs> and being yeah. able to a line the first line of this song is she's like the wind through my tree <laughs> yeah i mean i i read that it this song had a couple a, a few rewrites because he brought like the, the the bare bones like what he'd written and then like his co-writers just reconfigured it a few times they got it to a place i i really just like i like the storytelling aspect and like how it cues to um baby and johnny's like arc as characters and um how like the movie has so many points of like societal division mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um this and then she's like the wind like say they like it's funny because like you don't think much about what happens after everybody leaves the resort like does baby go off to college and continue to date johnny probably not because probably not. life will I mean, if, if they could get over, like, if they could get over the, like, socioeconomic atmosphere of, of this, like, Catskills resort, it's, like, that's, like, a microcosm for the rest of the world. And, like, she's, like, the wind, while it's cheesy and silly, and I don't 
think Patrick Swayze is a great singer, although this is a great song because uh, it really just like hits you in the feels. Like it, de he he definitely captures that like I'm not worthy. Um, she's better than me. Even quote, yeah. she's out of my league, and um, her family obviously comes from money, and he's kind of had to like be a gig worker and yeah yeah like i i don't know i i love the the song's kind of narrative placement within within the movie and yeah also like i'm guilty of singing that song just like oh. to, to to my pets i don't <laughs> do you have dogs or cats i just want to know who the song is uh, one, of each. <laughs> one of each one of each why not so you've got like yeah johnny and a baby <laughs> <laughs> It yeah works. it all works though like some songs like despite yourself and despite like your you know whatever how you want to criticize them on the basis of like their musicality or whatever mm -hmm. like you can't deny them it works in the movie I think it works in life um there are a lot of songs that come up on this podcast where it's like yeah do you sing them to your pets like of course you fucking do don't lie like don't lie to me and tell me that you haven't like belted that song at some point in your life because yeah again like none of these i probably wouldn't listen to like any of these songs in my car like apart from the movie other than maybe these like these arms of mine sure. or uh love man yeah or be my baby mm -hmm. or like big girls don't cry like that that's a classic I love but, that Otis Redding comes up twice. Like you brought up yeah. Otis and how like how did they even afford him? I, I think on the original soundtrack those songs don't appear. I might be mistaken. I think they, no, they you're correct. Yeah, you're correct. I, I actually went so I was looking at like the original soundtrack track listing and I was like, but this is not all of it. So then I, I jumped to the twentieth anniversary edition. Mm. Which I think is also like the like the because they had like that that double C D, double tape, double vinyl um that like I listened to because like like back when I was a kid they, they had like the like the Johnny's theme and mm -hmm. yeah the instrumentals and like the I've had the time of my life instrumental <laughs> <laughs> I remember listening to all of those songs um on tapes like on cassette tape called more dirty dancing yes yes why wouldn't it be called that it's just <laughs> that, that that's what it is yeah down and dirty <laughs> Yeah. Dirtier dancing. Dirtier yeah. dancing. No, they they made the right choice. Of course, that's what it was going to be called. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of like Otis Redding. I love Otis Redding. And I think of him as being like, I don't know, the soundtrack for like longing. And so I love that mm -hmm. he's like, he's very perfect, like mixed into this kind of pastiche of songs that they chose for this movie. Um, but what's weird is that like, it's just like you said, I have just as much love for these like objectively kind of like tinny and terribly produced like some of these 80s songs that I do for like these classics and it I don't know what that says about me I think it hit at the right time um where you just like you really held on to them I just want to like I, Hungry Eyes like still comes into my head why I don't know it shouldn't I'm not listening to it in the car either I don't stick yeah. it out but it's there yeah you still know all the words it's all the words sad. I also do like how like there's a lot of talk in the film about I mean they they name a number of like the cha cha and the merengue and um there are like there's like some like Latin like mid century Latin music that like gets its shine as well on the extended soundtrack. 
which is really cool. And that was probably my first like taste of Latin pop, like for my life, just by watching this movie. Yeah, I mean, it, you can really pinpoint this movie as like an exposure to a lot of different things and a lot of different like genres of music that if you're a kid, you've probably never heard before, artists that you've never heard before, which is what's beautiful about soundtracks in the first place. Um, I think it's also got some kind of nice like little deep cuts that maybe you didn't hear on if you grew up in Southern California, like K-Earth Radio as a kid. Um Obviously, Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia comes to mm-hmm. mind. It's, it's just like a really great like call and response song. But I don't know if it's one that like really had a lot of pop culture prominence at that time. But the scene between the two of them, I think, brought that to like a whole different place. Like, Where else has, I feel like um, Love is Strange has popped up a lot like since then. I'm sure I like it's another one of those things where it becomes like such a such a feature in culture that I'm sure it's been parodied. I'm sure it's been like reused. Um, Oh, okay. This I did not know. But uh, according to Wikipedia, um, Love is Strange appeared in Deep Throat. Did you know this? No. What? Yeah, that, 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 was that, right. <laughs> it is a porno. <laughs> yeah, it was apparently featured in Deep Throat. <laughs> okay. Um, well, obviously its most prominent placement was in Dirty Dancing. But this, so the song was parodied in um, New York Dolls' song Trash in 1973, huh? where singer David Johansson quotes, how do you call your lover boy? Trash. And... Um, Later, the song is covered by the fictional Scottish band, The Majestics, on um, the BBC television series 2D Fruity, also in 87. And um, then the spoken word part is referenced by Louis Reed at the end of his song, Beginning of a Great Adventure, on 1989's New York. And he married Sylvia Morales in 1980. This is fun. Shut up. A lot of this I just did not know. Um, Oh, Sylvia, okay, it was also, uh, Love is Strange was also in Badlands, which didn't Badlands have, uh, wasn't that a Patrick Swayze movie? Am I getting this right? That I don't know. I don't think so. No, I'm uh, maybe I'm thinking of some, thinking of something else. Um, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Okay. I'm wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of another movie. But okay, but regardless, yeah. all of those different like connective, like that's the best rabbit hole ever. Yeah. Oh, like, it, it goes on. It continues. So in 1995, it was used in um, Casino, Martin Scorsese's Casino. And then it's also used in The Sopranos <laughs> and The Wire. So wow. HBO, HBO likes Love is Strange. And gangster movies. That. Yeah. Orange shows. Those are but, also all like wildly different things for that to like crop up in. So yeah, again, like a testament to um, a track that you can use for a lot of different ends, I suppose. But I've heard yeah. trash so many times and I feel like I've, I've never ever registered that there's like that bit in it that's a reference yeah. to the song. That I think, tell. I think the only song like of all the 80s uh, songs that were written for the movie um, that I would listen to apart from the movie is where is it? I just want to find it. Guys, it's it's been a long day. No worries. Why am 
That's oh, Mary, but uh, yeah, Mary Clayton's Yes. Oh, which yeah. That's a great that, song. That is a really fun music video, which I watched earlier today. Nice. I, you know, I wish that I had had the presence of mind to rewatch like all the music videos connected to this movie because I bet they're so great. They, um, at least the ones I watched, so like I, I, I watched She's Like the Wind and Yes, and they both have a thing where you see like the performers, Patrick Swayze and Mary Clayton separately like singing. And then they like have these cool, like kind of fade in, fade out <laughs> scenes from the movie itself. Um, very similar to like the opening credits, I think to, to Dirty Dancing where it's mm -hmm. like all in black and white and kind of slowed down to look extra dramatic. And yeah, the music videos, they kind of do the same thing. Yeah, a lot of like crossfades and wins. yeah, a lot of crossfades. Yeah. I feel like they're they're really trying to like build up the drama. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, it's it's all like visually incredibly cheesy, but it's just so fun. <laughs> I don't know, it works. So, should we talk about the big hit from the film? I've had the time of my life. Let's do it. Um, so this drove the soundtrack, which ended up selling 16 million in the, in the U S like a ridiculous amount of units. Um, one of the best selling soundtracks of all time. So this song was written by, by Frank Previte, Pre Previte, Previt. sorry, Previte, Previte. For the continental so he was uh the lead singer of a band called frankie and the knockouts or frank and the knockouts um so he wrote this and i believe he also wrote hungry eyes and once again it did not want to originally do it because he thought this was a porno <laughs> but he ended up writing it obviously best uh decision of his life um but all, they they went to Donna Summer and Joe Esposito. They went to Lionel Richie. They went to Daryl Hall. <laughs> they went to Kim Carnes. And then, like uh, we said earlier, um, Bill Medley, who ended up singing on the song, turned it down. But ended up doing it um, with Jennifer Warnes, who uh, is best known for her work with Leonard Cohen. That's an interesting plot twist. It's just you, like, who would have thought? <laughs> Honestly, if there, you know, any Leonard Cohen connection is good for me, but it's just such such an odd. Like people's resumes are funny. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, growing up with this song, right? Like the song was everywhere, but we also didn't have the internet to be like, oh, who is Jennifer Warrens or who is Bill Medley? Like I, I had no idea who these people were until we like we really started researching it, like. Like, probably last week, if you asked me who sang Time of My Life, yeah. I'd be like, I don't know. Patrick Swayze and uh, Jennifer Grey? Well, that's why it's successful, though, because they, I mean, they, the, the film and the singers, it achieved the um, intention for the song because, like, it was written as though, um, like, Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze were singing to each other. Yeah. And it's it, it works right, and and they Bill Mudley and Jennifer Warrens have talked about that about how 
the sort of um, you know joyful notes that they hit in that song they're they're real because that's what they were trying to achieve. They were um, watching the dancing scene while singing. So all that is very much meant to they're meant to be stand-ins for the two leads. Um, the other thing that like because this is a, it's a music movie it's a dance movie it's all sorts of things right like you can't take the music out of it um, and have it stand. I think the other thing that's really cool about Dirty Dancing is like there, again, are a lot of like really just happy accidents. Um, apparently that end scene where they do like the very famous lift, um, they never practiced that because um, Jennifer Grey was like, I'm not a dancer and I'm afraid of everything, which she is was, yeah, She was like actually too scared to do it. She was too scared to do it and thought Patrick Swayze was going to drop her and she was going to break a million bones. So that was like the first and only time <laughs> that they did the thing. I, I, again, highly recommend reading Jennifer Gray's memoir. It's full of 80s tea that is still hot. <laughs> Piping hot 80s tea. Yeah. I love the behind the scenes. And she talks about her relationship with Patrick Swayze, because, like, I think the movie lore is that they hated each other, but that's not technically true. She would just get mad at him because... They, oh, Red Dawn, I think, is the movie they were in together prior to Dirty Dancing. And she just, like, she was really young and, like, really trying to take her um, acting career seriously. Like, she was, like, really, really serious. And he was always, like, breaking character and, like, flubbing his lines and just being kind of silly. And I think she, and then, like, something else happened in a scene that I don't remember specifically that, like, she held a grudge against him. So um, when it looked like he was like definitely going to get this part, he just like took her aside um, and was like, I am so, he like apologized from the bottom of his heart. Like, I'm so sorry that I made this harder for you on like Red Dawn. And like, I really think we could do an amazing job on this movie together. Um, But then like when they did do the movie, uh, when they did do Dirty Dancing together, he um, still had that kind of like, not always taking it seriously kind of energy and like there's other stuff that I'd have to go back and like read the memoir but like some of those old tensions resurfaced and that's kind of what you what you see in like their even their characters but like she also talks about how incredibly charming he was in life and that everyone was in love with him and that for that time she was in love with him too so she like loved him and like probably at the same time hated him and that probably is like <laughs> what like created this like very palpable tension yeah. <laughs> between their characters no that kind of thing that they have is is very genuine because mm-hmm. it's like the, it's the classic like annoyance to relationship sort of yeah yeah like, there's yeah. Like, a lot of tension there yeah i it's it's one of those like rarities where you're just like yeah this this works and i'm not even like there's a there's a bug i had to oh there's a bug there's a bug did you slap it with your bare hand flying no i just wanted to uh make sure i i said this on the record uh my senior prom theme was time of my life and this was the last song that i heard at my prom your senior prom theme was time of your life (laughs) yeah that's great. And I didn't um, rem- I didn't remember that until you were like, hey, let's do Dirty Dancing. And I was like, what's the big song from that movie time in my life? I was like, oh, yeah, prom. Oh, wow. Well, it's played. It's like a big prom bar, mit- bar bat mitzvah wedding song. Right. Yeah. Um, what, what year was your prom? Just out of curiosity. Uh, 2000. Oh, 
okay, well, you're only four years ahead of me. Yeah. We're just talking about our prom songs and your your prom song was uh time of my life was the theme. We oh. didn't we didn't we didn't have a theme for our prom. I would have preferred well, not having a theme. I remember yeah. like asking like why are we doing the dirty dancey song from our theme? This is the year literally this is the year two thousand. <laughs> And uh, um, I also thought you meant Time of My Life by Green Day. Yeah, I was like, Are you talking oh, yeah. about are we talking about the Green Day song or are we yeah. talking about dirty, and they're, they're dirty dancing? I'm like, Who, who, why? That has nothing to do with like our high school class. Not that I was like super invested in these things, but I was just like, Did you guys like hear this song at all frequently if, if you attended like a wedding or another school dance or? A bar or bat mitzvah like what when would you hear because i remember like for every i went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs on the like in the northeast <laughs> of the country and we always heard um like ymca just a shitload of 70s songs it was like yeah. cause the night because the 90s were obsessed with the, with the 70s like so ymca heard, and funky town mm-hmm, yeah. and electric slide and the hustle and we just yeah. heard that yep that's like but I, looking back, I don't, I mean, it's possible that they play Time of Your Life, but I don't actually remember hearing it very much outside of this movie. I, I have a theory that the reason you don't hear it more at weddings is because there's too much pressure. Like, what are you going to do to that song? Are you going to do it for <laughs> routine? You can't. It's impossible. So, Someone's going to try have... to do the lift and they're drunk and they're going to drop somebody. Oh, no, 100%. <laughs> Someone's going to get drunk dropped. <laughs> that would be me. I would try to like lift a cousin or something. No, 100%. That's it's too much pressure. The The bar is too high. And the, I think the level of difficulty is too great. I do love the end scene, though, where like for this one moment, everybody comes together, like yeah. the staff and the guests and the like head staff who in the beginning of the movie is like condescending to and being a jerk to the lower right. like it's like there's like this caste system within the cats within the kellerman's resort staff and like different races i mean it could it could have stood to be more um diverse a hundred percent because there's oh, like yeah. one black couple and only they get to dance together which right problematic today mm-hmm. um that being said like you've got like like everyone from everywhere just dances together like like gener- the generation divide which was like feeling like tense with throughout the movie and um like you, right before the song starts you hear like the the Kellerman song that just goes on and on and on and on it's like the song that will end cuz it's like there's no there there is like um there's a chorus in the Kellerman song, but they just like sing speak the lyrics in this really annoying. It's not meant to be quality and it really isn't any good. Um, but but it's a very sad song about how like it kind of reflects the owner's fe- like feelings of loss that like this bygone era will no longer like kids don't want to come with their parents and learn like like the mambo or like the lindy hop or whatever <laughs> at uh at like day camp for adults they just they want to go to europe and they want to like do it like they want to get out there they don't want to stay at home they want to take trips and leave the country and 
Uh, and but like for one moment during all the song plays, like it it implies the how like the looking back and fondness and like nostalgia and memory and memories and like something's ending. Mm-hmm. But for this one moment in time, everyone's like making that moment together. And yeah, I just love it. I'm probably gonna repeat all of this when I do like talk about this song. I mean, you have to. I mean, yeah, the super happy ending, right? It's like the it, it's the elusive like that. This never happens in real life, but it that's the the movie magic of it all is that like everything gets suspended for that one moment in time, and everyone is um, suddenly like on equal footing through the power of like magic and dance and music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's so idyllic. Having lived the life now, I'm like, what happens when they leave Keller? Are they gonna are Johnny and Baby gonna stay together? Probably not. I regret to inform you that I did read a thing that Jennifer Gray is involved in a sequel that she talks about. Um, And we're not talking about Havana Nights, correct? No, 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 it's it's an in production sequel. Yeah, currently being made, which is wild to me because again, like, what the hell? Like that's so much staying power for people to even have that in their consciousness in 2023 but it is something that she's doing which obviously Patrick Swayze um will not be in um so I'm sure this whole idea of like what happens next is really about a uh, baby's story mm-hmm. I don't want it I don't think but I'll, I'll try to reserve judgment <laughs> I'm just reminded now of um Jennifer Grey and uh, my my other one of my other all time favorite movies, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and um, how when I met my husband, we like he loves that movie just as much as I love that movie, and um, he will frequently when he's feeling overwhelmed, be like like quote Jennifer Grey and be like, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> so wild, yeah. Well, I'm glad they're not making a sequel to that movie. They are. So, I said I'm glad they're not. Oh, we don't need to know what happens after that. Um, Succession is the sequel. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Before we continue with our episode, here's a word from our sponsor. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated, and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy well final thoughts one last thing that I found uh, that was really funny is the guy who was the soundtrack supervisor's name was Michael Lloyd he also uh, produced uh, Time of Time of My Life um, he has like a really strange career like he's done some big names like Belinda Carlisle and Barry Manilow but he also like produced a bunch of songs for like kid songs nice and then uh, as far as like soundtrack supervision work, you would s- assume he would, you know, have a bunch of credits there. It's like the Garbage Pail, garbage pail Kids movie from like 1987. <laughs> and then um, 1998's Godzilla. Nice. Oh. 
Well, and well, this song won like a lot of awards, right? Oscar. It won the Oscar. It got yeah. Best the song, song Grammy for best uh, pop duo. Mm-hmm. You know, the song was uh, obviously one of the biggest, you know, soundtrack songs of all time. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, what did you do after that? I did some stuff for Barry Manilow and then, you know, Garbage Pill Kids. I mean, after a song Puffy like this, like, Jimmy Page. How, how do you top this? How, like, after this song comes out and, like, does what it does. I mean, I read that, like, this song is such a cool example of a great sync because it was released before the movie came out because, like, Vestron failed to... Um, communicates RCA that they were pushing the movie's release back by a few weeks. So RCA releases the song and it really doesn't do anything commercially. It just kind of looks like a flop. Then the movie comes out, song explodes. Yeah. It, it, I mean, like it, that, which is a big miscalculation in days before streaming to be like, Oh, we're going to release it now. Oops. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's like, it's outside of the reference to the movie. If you've maybe never seen the movie and you hear this song, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it has like an impact for you or if it like it affects you the same way emotionally. I, I, I'll i never be able to say because the two are so intertwined, which I guess is yeah, I mean, a fantastic artifact of soundtrack making. One of our InSync uh, episodes that hasn't come out yet, uh, but we did an episode on Fight the Power and... Um, do the right thing Mm -hmm. and i think like fight the power while it's so inextricably linked with do the right thing because it like the song and the movie were made like in tandem like the song was made for the movie but like i as a music listener had listened to fight the power a ton before like just independent of the film like way well before i saw do the right thing and uh like i can think of both pieces of media separately, but, but, um, I've had the time in my life. Like I will never be able, like if I listen to it aside for like out, out of context with the movie, like all I will do is think of the movie. I won't think of anything other than dirty dancing. And that's fine. That like, not every song can has to live on its own. Mm -hmm. Like these two, lift each other up <laughs> the film and, literally and the song <laughs> one is like each one is is a uh, made better by the other that's a that's a fair sentiment i think yeah well thank you rachel so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me yeah this was a lot of fun if you want to come back and talk about some other uh, soundtracks we would love to have you Oh, yeah. Always. Uh, yes. Yes, please. How can our listeners find you or your podcast? Um, InSync is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok at the InSync Pod, I believe. And I am um, at on Instagram, I think at RE Broads and Twitter and Blue Sky at Rachel Broads. And if, if you didn't remember any of that, you can just Google me. I'm very SEO friendly. <laughs> and we'll put those links in our show notes as well. Sweet. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank, thank you, Rachel. You. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe.
subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.